0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. I am curious about the perception that people in the UK or other countries have of the US right now when they see this unscalable wall, when they see these protests, when they see on both sides, quite frankly, going on. Because again, to me, it's reminiscent of a lot of other countries. And that's why I think it's important that everyone take a deep breath practice patience and count all the votes.
1: Hey all it's Joe and it's wonderful to be back with you. We have a special edition today that I am extremely excited about. It's all about the U.S. election. Uh, there is so much to unpack it's almost difficult to wrap the head around but let me set the context for this. So I am and well, I was born in Washington D.C. live in the area right now. This area is, is kind of Saw, right, so it's a 10 mile by 10 mile plot of land um, there's 750 ish thousand people that live in this space and you know I lived and breathed the Washington atmosphere the feeling for my entire existence my father worked at the State Department worked at the Peace Corps and at the World Bank and my mom was a speech-language pathologist and everything that they did all the people that were always around us were involved in politics as lobbyists or in some connection to uh, the other things that were going on in that greater scheme of things. It's it's a bizarre place in many respects, but a very cool thing. So when I walked outside of my high school and, and craned my head off to the right, not five blocks away, is the Capitol building. Beautiful sight. It's almost awe-inspiring when you're able to do that. I feel very fortunate that I had that opportunity. But it's a a surreal place. So among those, let's say 750,000 people, there are 65,000 lawyers that are present in the city during any normal circumstances. Now, they're here for big law, large law, medium law, some small law, but they're also here for the NGOs, the nonprofits. These are people that are trying to make a difference in the world by working through the system in in different capacities. There's also lobbyists, but we'll we'll leave them alone for now. So what's so cool about this space is that while I pride myself on understanding politics and sort of living and breathing some of this stuff for as long as I have, today, today's guest, Sanaz Eskarzadeh, who is principal at Atlas Law Firm, is joining me to sort of unpack this stuff. And she would eat my lunch when it comes to her knowledge about the system and government. And what's so cool about it is that she's not originally from here. So she was born in Tehran, Iran. She came to the United States at six years of age. And you'll hear her story about how she moved through um, her life, eventually going to law school and then working at Big Law, one of the top 20 law firms, and how she's now embracing that and moving into the politics world uh, and and constitutional law. So she'll talk a little bit about that as well. This is a fun conversation. I really enjoyed it. So let's get started. The hearing. Sanas, thanks a ton for being here today. I really appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much for having me, Joe.
1: All right. So we're going to get into the election. We have to. The U.S. election. What the heck is happening right now and for the love of all that's good, um, why does it operate like this? So together, we're going to sort of uncover the constitutional questions and hopefully some answers today about what's going on. And we are now roughly, I mean, we're in the belly of the beast. I mean, we're approximately a mile away from the White House in Washington, D.C. And they've put together these unscalable walls right around the White House. So the context for all of this that's happening right now is just, it's unparalleled. We've never seen anything like this. But before we even get into that stuff, let's let's talk about you. I wanna hear a little bit more about you and your past, your history. I love stories where people grew up and how those events may have shaped your life. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
0: Uh, sure, first, thanks for having me on during this chaotic period in US history and unprecedented presidential election. I have been like everybody else Uh, riveted to the news and watching in hopes that we'll have some results soon, but today is Thursday after the election and we still don't have any results. I have to say my interest in presidential elections and elections in general probably started at an earlier age. I moved to the U.S. uh, around the time of kindergarten, so five, six years old. I was born in uh, Tehran, Iran, and i don't want to age myself by saying this but i think uh, there's no other way to do it i was born in the midst of the revolution so
1: that puts you at what age? Right. <laughs> right just
0: barely 20 right <laughs> right, <laughs> right. Uh, i was born during that time and uh, it was i was there through the beginnings of the iran iraq war and my family fled iran And like many immigrants, sought a better, safer life. And we found that here in the United States. I grew up in a state I'm hoping many of your listeners have traveled to, but I'm doubtful, the lovely state of New Mexico, where early on uh, through a dear friend of mine, I got interested in politics because her mom was interested in politics and her mom was a judge as well. So she really spearheaded my desire to enter the law and have an interest in politics at the same time. So I remember being in high school and her mom encouraging us to go see Bill Clinton come to the state and he was running for re-election at the time. It was around 1996, I believe, and he was there with our uh, Bill Richardson, who was a legislature who was a governor and who also was, uh, in the administration, and it was just uh, great to be in the proximity to see what was happening and to have uh, see actually how American politics worked. And I have had the pleasure of meeting former President Clinton a couple decades later on. Uh,
1: <laughs> what was it like?
0: He was very verbose. Yeah, was he? <laughs> yeah, he was, he, it is true. He was very verbose. His uh, handlers were trying to take him away as we were discussing uh, international law and the application of that. So it was great to meet him. And being in D.C., you get to see these, you know, politicians firsthand. I remember about four years ago when Trump initially passed the Muslim ban. I went into the streets with a lot of other people, and I ran into then-Senator, and now-Senator, too. Hopefully, possibly, who knows what her title will be in the future, but uh, Senator Kamala Harris of California. And I had lived in California for quite some time. That's where I did my undergraduate, and that's where I went to law school as well, and that's where I started my career as a lawyer. So it was... Great to literally be on the ground and see the participation among the masses
1: that's and, crazy that's fantastic why so you <laughs> to have met both of those individuals has got to be a uh, an amazing experience no question um so you grew up in new mexico what part of new mexico was that
0: I grew up in Albuquerque.
1: Oh, so uh, Breaking of uh, Breaking Bad faith. <laughs> yes. <laughs> how real, how true to form is that?
0: Not very true to <laughs> form. Uh, uh, I, so. I, I preferred it when people knew it from the Bugs Bunny making a wrong left turn, but. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so let's jump into the election stuff and talk a little bit more about that. So setting the context, and I think everyone's aware of this. Um, the virus clearly hangs over everything at this point in time. Um, there's, there's no question about that. Uh, in the U.S., there's 100,000 positive cases over the course of the last day. I know the U.K. has just started going into a month-long lockdown. Um, Italy's curfews going into place. So things are unfortunately kicking back in uh, to a very negative side. But as we start to look at what's going on within the election, clearly that's, that's a part of this in the bigger picture. But let's break down what's happening with regard to the presidential election. Right now, there's a number of states that we're waiting for that are counting their votes still. So, we're, as you said, two days later, we're trying to find out what's going to happen within these states. They might be leaning in one direction towards Biden or towards Trump. We have this thing, popular votes, right? But we also have this electoral college. Can you help us sure. understand what the electoral college versus the popular vote?
0: Sure. So... Every four years, we as Americans get another lesson into what the Electoral College is. So I'm happy to share that with (laughs) your American and non-American viewers. Uh, We have had the Electoral College since the founding of the United States. It is only applicable in presidential elections. So every four years, every other election is popular vote. And in a democracy, the U.S. stands out for using the Electoral College. Every other democracy uses popular vote. What we do is we cast our ballot that then goes to an elector. And then the electors meet, and then they cast their ballots for the president. So if you're to break it down, each state has a certain number of electors. And that is based on their population and also the constitutionally mandated two senators. So take a state like California. Uh, It's the most populous state in the country. And it has, I believe, 53 congressional districts. That's based on its population. So it has 53 representatives in the house of representatives. So it gets those 53 electoral votes plus the two senators. So it has 55 electoral votes. Now, take a smaller state, say Delaware, which uh, Vice President Biden is from. They have one congressional district and two senators. So they get three votes. So at a minimum, each state would have three electoral votes.
1: Fascinating. Um, so if we start thinking about that a little bit more, uh, we're, you need to get the president's eventually needs to get 270 minimum electoral, electoral votes. Um at this stage what does it look like is is happening
0: So at this stage Biden is leading but like you said there's about 5 states right now outstanding and they're still counting their ballots and in every election even after the ballots are cast on that first Tuesday after November 1st they continue counting the ballots till the state legislators deadline to do so and they have to get those ballots in before the electoral college meets in december right now the issues that seem to be arising is based on counting of the mail-in ballots so
1: so there's several different pieces right so people obviously can go vote on the day that the election happens which is the third of november
0: traditionally you go vote in person but um Decades ago, because of enlisted military members who were overseas, the U.S. started sending in mail-in ballots. Ah, And that has expanded. Some states just do mail-in ballots, Oregon, Utah, for example. And under the current circumstances of the pandemic, a lot of states have expanded that or they've expanded the deadline to send in mail-in ballots, Uh, again, because of the pandemic and because of the toll it's taken on the U.S. Postal Service. So Pennsylvania had extended that deadline and that's at issue in a lot of the litigation that was brought before the election. And that's currently pending after the election because Trump right now does not want president Trump does not want all of the votes counted. Uh, He even went on Twitter today to state stop counting. The issue is that in a democracy, each Legally, lawfully uh, given vote should be counted.
1: Yeah, of course. And no, definitely, you're right.
0: This is an issue that uh, you know I've experienced myself. Being Iranian American, you know, just a decade ago, the issue was okay. We've cast our votes. Where is my vote? Why isn't it counting? And we, as Americans, want to show the world that we are a beacon of democracy, and we count every vote. But uh, which votes are counted, how they're counted, is going to come into play right now.
1: But every state seems to be different, right? So that's some of the problem. Correct. If you have, uh, they have to be uh, time stamped, so to speak, uh, postal mark, whatever, postmarked, on no. uh, whatever date, was probably the third for everyone or not.
0: Well, traditionally, yes. Um, but that's that issue in Pennsylvania because they don't technically need to be postmarked. In Pennsylvania by November 3rd. The theory is that if they're like there in the postal office by November 3rd, then they have arrived. So they have a stamp. They're fine. And that's kind of one of the issues that the U.S. Supreme Court has left open to rehearing the Pennsylvania case. Do I think it's going to go that far? Uh, probably unlikely. But, you know, the probably unlikely has happened a lot so far. What Joe Biden needs to do if he's to kind of avoid some of this potential litigation is to win several of the states. And it's up in the air whether that's going to happen or not.
1: No, I mean, it's wild. So just that piece alone is something that's sort of hard to wrap the head around. Uh, I mean, you have every single state potentially doing it a little bit differently. Um, And so that throws some questions in some people's minds about how things are done, Um, And gives the president an opportunity to say, "Okay, I'm going to now bring and and call up some civil acts, some actions towards uh, whatever states. And I know he's I think he started some actions in Wisconsin, maybe or Michigan or no. So,
0: yes, uh, Nevada, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. He has uh, asked for a recount, which, you know, that's perfectly fine. Uh, Every Every nominee has the right to ask for a recount. But I have to say that the former governor of Wisconsin, Scott Walker, who's a Republican, used his Twitter platform as well to say, you know, the margin is pretty high. There's about 20,000 plus vote difference. So even if he has a recount, potentially unlikely. But yes, after the votes are counted, uh, each person, each presidential nominee can ask for a recount within that margin of error. And that's different for every state. And I want to pick up on something that you said. There isn't uniformity in how states run elections, how electors for the Electoral College are nominated. You know, there isn't even uniformity on the fact that the electors in the Electoral College have to vote for the candidate that the people choose. I don't know if you've heard of this faithless, Elector?
1: No, what's that?
0: Okay. So it's kind of fascinating. Uh, You know, puts a crink in the system. Theoretically, if somebody is, you know, supposed to cast their vote for, say, Joe Biden, but is secretly a Trump supporter, they could change that vote. Mm. And that could change the outcome of the election if, for some instance, it's a tie.
1: For the Electoral College.
0: For the Electoral College. Okay, okay. Uh, Now, some people may have heard that there was a U.S. Supreme Court case this past summer with respect to faithless electors and said that no, faithless electors have to cast their vote. It is constitutional for them to cast their vote for the person that's designated to receive those. But that's only applicable in the states and that have a law requiring that. And currently there's only 33 states plus the District of Columbia that require that.
1: So one of the things that I saw was that the president potentially is going to call upon the Supreme Court of the United Mm. States to try to do something. Does that even make sense from a constitutional perspective?
0: Uh, It's funny you ask that question because I think when he stated that the morning after the election, a lot of people were a little confused and concerned. I got one or two calls from family and friends being like, is this going to the Supreme Court? Because they were remembering Bush v. Gore right. in 2000. And just a simple answer to that, no. He can't just take a case to the Supreme Court of the United States. The Supreme Court just doesn't have jurisdiction to hear a case just directly going to it with respect to election uh, elections. But what would happen is, say, again, in the Bush v. Gore case, it would start off in state courts and work its way up through the appellate courts or would start off in federal court and work its way up as well. And then it could potentially reach the Supreme Court again using Bush v. Gore. They started off in the Florida state courts and it took about a month. So it's obviously expedited because it's really (laughs) important for us to know. Uh, And it was expedited and it took a month to reach the Supreme Court. Wow. So it can't just directly go there.
1: But What sort of thing could he hypothetically file in a state to take it to the Supreme Court, do you think?
0: That's a great question. That's a million dollar question right (laughs) there. Um, uh, You know, right now they're contesting how the ballots are being counted and whether they're – Allowing them to review the ballots, allowing GOP reps to review, Republican representatives to review the ballots. Um, He, you know, he can claim fraud, but you have to have evidence to bring a lawsuit. So they have to have more substantial evidence. But I could see them peppering the courts, which they've already started doing in a lot of jurisdictions, about potential you know, problems that they're seeing, whether in reality those cases are going to go forward. It'll take probably a couple of days to find out in Nevada right now, where they've already filed a lawsuit, there is briefs that are due to the court on Monday. So I think we will get some more definitive understanding of if there is any standing to bring these lawsuits Uh, in the next weeks or so but also if joe biden wins these five outstanding states and there is a large discrepancy i i don't know if it would be strategically prudent on a political basis as opposed to a legal basis to go forward with the lawsuits because even if he did there may not be a pathway to 270
1: it is wild to think about all of this. Um, and as we're sort of talking right now, it's there's, it's down to roughly four or five states um, in terms of the counting. Um, but it looks sort of
0: object,
1: t- staying back from it, it looks like um, that Biden probably has somewhat of an edge, but that's yet to be decided. So we don't know.
0: And, and some people may be wondering why Trump wants the votes, just the ballots to stop being counted. And that is because of the mail-in ballots. Um, A lot of the mail-in ballots, they believe, are going to swing towards Joe Biden, that people who are going to vote for the Democratic nominee have chosen to mail it in. And the mail-in ballots, again, take Pennsylvania as an example, have been there in Pennsylvania, probably, you know, postmarked before November 3rd and have been sitting there, but because of the Pennsylvania legislature, which is predominantly Republican, they have not allowed them to start counting until election day. So as they start counting, that's going to change the numbers, and that's what we've been seeing a lot. And again, this goes back to the uniformity. Some states, as the mail-in ballots start coming in, they're allowed to open it up and start counting. Other states don't. And I think this election and this pandemic has shed light on how the elections for president are done and how we're going to do them going forward. Are we going to allow, you know, mail-in ballots to be counted beforehand? Or are we going to allow more uh, voting beforehand, which really alleviates the pressures come November 3rd with lines and with potential disenfranchisement? which is a major issue in American elections.
1: Yeah, no question. So if we were to sort of take a, another step back from this, and it's a tangent from what we've been talking about, but connected, no question. If you're to sort of boil this all down, um, because the United States is essentially split almost in half. We've seen it for the last 20 years for the most part. Um, if you're looking at the elections, it's 50-50. It's nearly 50-50 in terms of the popular vote. Um, as well as even in the electoral college, it's very close, right? Um, by let's say a few million or a few percentages on either side. So it might be forty-eight to fifty-two. Bigger picture, how do you how do you even conceptualize? How do you break that down into who who are the these people? Like on both sides, do you see? Like, can you conceptualize what that looks like?
0: That's a really telling question, and I think that's something that we're going to be delving into. You know, postmortem of this election a lot is who we are as a country and who we want to be as a country. Going forward, I think for a lot of people around the world, 2020 has shed a lot of light onto the divisions. There's a lot of tension on both sides. And as you set up just this past week, me driving into D.C., Just the barricades around, you know, people on both sides are very scared of the other side. So it's a a coming together and understanding. And quite frankly, I'm not quite sure how we get there.
1: Yeah. So I guess maybe I have a different perspective on that a little bit. And and my view is maybe it's too simplistic uh, is simply this. It almost feels like um, and this is no offense to, to either group cities versus the country. Um, where people have different perspectives on the way that they look at their their lens on the world, how they see things, how they work, uh, what they touch day in and day out. And they're very different. And, you know, based on my very cursory overview of what's going on in the UK, it feels very similar, truly feels very similar. Now, that's, again, a very simplified view of it. But that's what seems to be playing out from my small perspective over the last, whatever, 10, 20 years um, but what, to your point, one of the things that it sort of bled into is, uh, more civil unrest as to your point, what you're describing is what's going on in DC. And I've been down there myself and I've seen the barricades and I've seen this quote unquote unscalable wall that they've erected because they are deeply concerned about what could potentially happen over the course of the next week or so. If there's no true clear winner, so to speak, and all of these cases come to the various states, and they're all trying to figure this out, there's going to be a lot of people in the streets uh, trying to figure out what's going on and what what's the best avenue forward. So,
0: And I am curious about the perception that people in the UK or other countries have of the US right now, when they see this unscalable wall, when they see these protests, when they see on both sides, quite frankly, going on, Because, again, to me, it's reminiscent of a lot of other countries. And that's why I think it's important that everyone take a deep breath, practice patience, and count all the votes.
1: No, no, no question. And it was funny. I read something the other day from Susan Glasser, who's uh, of The New Yorker. And she was like, "Ah, I've been covering Trump's Washington for the last, you know, four years. And never before have I seen anything like it. It feels like a foreign country where maybe things aren't, as uh, pulled together, hopefully. Um, and what you're seeing are storefronts that are boarded up. You're seeing streets that are cordoned off for blocks around the White House in anticipation of what could come. And that's just bonkers.
0: It, it truly is. But I'm going to say on the flip side of it, because uh, we have seen uh, different states showing us how they're counting the ballots literally on your tv you turn around and there are people who work for that committee or they're volunteers and they're there giving up their time and counting the ballots so there is transparency here whereas in a lot of other places there are not and this is really a testament to our democracy but also something that i hope both sides really uh highlight and showcase uh, and that is going to be of utmost importance that we really uphold the rule of law.
1: No, I, I that makes total sense to me and we hope for that. So one one scenario that I just want to play out, and I'm just kind of curious to get your, uh, your thoughts on. So let's pretend in this hypothetical that Trump does not win. Um, he tries every avenue that he possibly can through the courts to uh, overturn things or discredit or whatever the case is, right? Um, he has from now, let's say it's from now until, I guess, January, what is it, the 21st or something like that, that the next president would be sworn in the so, inauguration.
0: So technically he has till... The 15th. December 14th. 14th. okay. 14, yeah, December 14th, when the Electoral College, all of them meet in their state legislatures and they cast the ballots. And then the first week of January, those are sent, the results are sent to the House and to the Congress, I'm sorry, House and Senate to confirm. And then on January 20th, the president and vice president elects are sworn in.
1: Okay. Okay. So there's a lot of time in there for him to do all sorts of things if he wanted to. I mean, some of the things that he's done in the past, as all presidents have done, mm-hmm. is... Um,
0: well, I don't know about all. But change, <laughs> well, no, change,
1: change sentences for people that have been in prison, oh, right? So, yes. and this is one thing that I think is important for people to understand or see, because it, to me, it's fascinating that you can, do they commute sentences? What pardon. They pardon. They just do straight up pardons for sometimes hundreds, if not a thousand people.
0: Only for federal too. Only federal. Okay. Only federal. So it does not have power to pardon for states that rests with the governors of each state. So only for federal and, um, uh, yes I've heard chatter that he may be pardoning with abandon who knows right. but mm-hmm. there have been a lot several names tossed around uh, including his own believe it or not
1: so that's one of the things I'm really curious about so I there are a lot of things that are being uh, levied against him in some respects going forward in terms of legally be it sure. his family Financial world, personal financial world, and what's going on since then. That could be brought to him as a uh, typical U.S. citizen. Let's say when and if he when he finishes. Let's say either now in the next month or two, or in four years from now. um, Are there concerns about what what could happen to him? I guess Uh, are there suits that could be leveled or carried out uh, going forward with some of the stuff that he's been involved with? Uh, that could put him into some real, true jeopardy? Or could he pardon himself?
0: So as, as president, no, the lawsuits have not been brought except for the one um, for defamation that has been moving forward. Um, but the pardoning himself is a good question. And I think a lot of legal scholars have been pondering that because quite frankly, we don't know, we've never seen it or experienced it in our history. Uh, I was on a call recently with my former constitutional law professor, Professor Chemerinsky, who I'll share his feelings on that. And he thinks that for what it's worth, no, a president cannot pardon himself or herself because a pardon is something you bestow on someone else. So you can't bestow it on yourself. But I do believe that it's plausible that if he attempts it, it will be litigated and we may have an answer to that. Now he presented an interesting hypothetical theory is that the president on if he's not reelected on the last day could potentially, you know, resign and vice president Mike Pence could be sworn in and then Mike Pence as president could pardon former president Trump.
1: <laughs> but what would he be pardoning? Like pardoning anything going forward that has not been brought or
0: for federal cases, yeah.
1: Wow. That's fascinating. and In some respects, that stuff is a little unnerving when you see that there are some powers that we would expect would all be in check, but maybe maybe they're not.
0: I, I, and to be quite honest, I think this is more of a law school hypothetical. Right. True.
1: But so <laughs> everything else an, seems to be playing out. Yeah,
0: true. So it's true. 2020. So you just don't know. I mean, what I'm curious about, and this is, again, with the caveat and assumption of, you know, if Biden wins the Electoral College, and it looks like he's going to win the popular vote, by the way. Um, But if he wins the Electoral College, which is critical, is going forward, you know, the role of President Trump. Does he show up to the inauguration? Is there an inauguration that similar to what we've seen? Um, The transfer of power, I would assume that Trump acknowledges the transfer of power, because I guess because that's what presidents do. That's you know, yes. You know, and will he criticize Biden going forward? Because traditionally, presidents, former presidents, take a back seat and they don't criticize. And then the other will be, you know, the role of the Supreme Court in McConnell who is likely to be Senate majority leader again. He won his reelection in Kentucky. And the role of the Senate in, you know, appointing judges, federal judges, and potentially appointing future Supreme Court judges if during a potential Biden presidency, you know, Clarence Thomas or somebody else decides to resign, step down, what have you retire is probably a better term, Um, is McConnell going to block, you know, that nominee as he did with Merrick Garland under Obama? And McConnell also under Obama did not let a lot of his federal judge, open federal judge seats go forward and appoint judges there. So, you know, is there an avenue to really stop him from doing that? I I don't think so.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we've moved from sort of the the other from one branch to the other two branches really quickly. So uh, from the executive branch, of course, presidential election to uh, the judicial branch and then the legislature group, everyone all together, all that. So the three. Right. So just just to distinguish all of those uh, and just briefly. like yeah, I'm kind of curious. So the Senate is uh, there's roughly there's 100 uh, senators across the country. And that's very close. So they are almost at, that so there's a Republican majority. We're probably going to see that carry over into this next era. Uh, and then for the House of Representatives, we're looking at the, the Democrats' thought that they were going to maintain this large majority. But that sort of shifted a little bit. And they may lose between 8 and 12 different seats um, there. So, um,
0: but yeah. But the Democrats are going to keep the majority in the House.
1: Yes, no, they definitely will. You're they absolutely will. right.
0: And the Senate is, you're right, likely to be a majority for the Republicans still. But there are um, a couple potential seats that are still up. There's two Georgia seats that may go off and go into a runoff election in uh, January. One is definitively going to a runoff. And the other one, Georgia has a rule that if somebody doesn't get more than 50% of the votes, that automatically goes to a runoff. So with these ballots still coming in, because again, we're still waiting for Georgia for the presidential election. Um, With these ballots coming in, we're still kind of waiting, although it looks unlikely. Uh, But it still would be very interesting if that went into another potential runoff because Georgia could then flip from two Republican senators to to, two Democratic. And that would be a huge shift for the Senate.
1: Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, all right, before we move in, I have to move into some technology at some sure. point, just for a little bit. We'll just touch on technology, but before we do that, one interesting and last point that you had sort of just talked briefly about, and that is, I mean, there's uh, another individual that I would read something recently about Nicholas Kristof, um, and I think he's at the New York Times. But he had mentioned something around about the, the poisoning of the chalice, which is what we're sort of experiencing in the U.S. right now, where you have just really different perspectives on it, almost like the masked people versus the unmasked when it comes to the virus, um, the way people think about how things are going versus, you know, how others think about how things are going. But fundamentally, what we're talking about is if um, if Biden were to take take the take the office. um there's going to be a real need for some sort of, uh, changing of the, the sentiment, the feeling, uh, how, just, how do you think he would go about doing that? Like, how do you, how do you go from the, the, the wildness that we've had over the last four years to, um, having someone maybe try to take more of an even, even keeled tact forward, um, about how we deal with each other.
0: I mean, I I may be a little bit pessimistic, but I think it's, going to take a lot more than Biden to do it. Because I think if anything, this election has shown that uh, Trumpism is not a fluke. And he won a lot more than people did. We also realized that pollsters were not really, you know, showing us the full picture. So and I don't think Trump's voice is going to disappear. I think it's going to be there, even though McConnell will be the leader of the Republican party for all intensive purposes, as Nancy Pelosi was the last four years for the Democrats with the house. Um, McConnell will do that, but I still think that Trump is going to be a very powerful voice. So it really is going to require both sides to get into the arena, to try to work together. And I think that is going to our first test of that. Will be with the Senate, okay. And how McConnell and Biden work together. I mean, people are hoping because Biden spent a majority of his career in the Senate that he has those reputations. He has worked alongside McConnell, that there is some sort of bridge. But we'll have to wait and see.
1: No, I know. And so the last thing that I would say about that—that that you you struck a chord inside of me—is—is is there's this unwritten law uh, rule, so to speak that um, when presidents fade off into the sunset they kind of do they pretty much remain quiet on all things going forward for the most part um, we saw a little bit of change with Obama in this respect really going to task uh, during the election um, for Biden but more often than not they they remain quiet um, and not interfering with the current president's or the next president's view on the world and how they're trying to do things so we'll see if that comes to pass what happens so all right, We got to shift the technology just a little bit. There's two things that I want to bring up. The first is something that happened in California. And whenever I think about California, I think about they, whenever they get a, whenever they sneeze, the rest of the country catches a cold in some respects. So one of the things that they were uh, dealing with in a proposition uh, on the ballot was around Uber and Lyft and what they considered. Um, do they consider, um, someone that's driving the car? So driving around, are they an employee or are they a contractor? Um, so they actually voted and the people of California, and they ended up coming up with that they're actually contractors, so they're not employees. So they don't get the benefits, right? Is that what's happening?
0: Sure. Yeah. Um, so this is something I deal with in my practice and I do practice in California as well. And essentially what happened is January 1st of this year, 2020, uh, the, a new labor law took effect, uh, California assembly bill five. And like you said, it recharacterized a lot of independent contractors who were working for gig economies as employees. Um, so it, you know, targeted rideshare platforms, but it also applied to other freelancers. And so what was on the ballot this year was, can we exempt these rideshare and food delivery apps from this labor law? And in the meantime, Uber Lyft had filed litigation in California with the state courts to trying to to overturn this and saying that this should not apply. This labor law should not apply to them. Uh, they lost in the lower courts and the appellate court. And Uber Lyft were saying, "We're out of California if this law applies because it's going to cost us Tons too much money, Yes, uh, because you know. Being an employee versus an independent contractor, you know, the employer has to offer, you know, employer-sponsored health insurance, overtime pay, paid sick leave, disability insurance, unemployment, and then there's generally a full body of rights under labor and employment law that they would be entitled to as well. Well, the Court of Appeals stayed the decision until the election, essentially, and now we have... The voters deciding, and they have decided that yes, Uber and Lyft can be exempt, as well as food delivery apps. Their drivers are exempt from this.
1: That's amazing. <laughs> it really is amazing.
0: Yeah, right. it's it, sorry. Just one other caveat: these guys spent probably upwards of two hundred million dollars on this ballot measure,
1: which oh, is my gosh.
0: the most expensive. A uh, ballot campaign in California state history.
1: It's I mean, there's a ton of money, I and mean, there's a there, ton of money is. in this decision. So it's it's fascinating. All right, last question around technology because I'm definitely curious. Um, in your line of work, what has been probably the most eh, I'll use the word transformative technology you've used recently that have helped helped you in your business, uh, the business of law, so to speak?
0: Well, technology is just transformative for the legal practice. And I think we've seen that, especially during the pandemic year, but um, probably like most attorneys, lawyers out there, I am not the most tech savvy (laughs) individual. So my reliance on it is a love hate relationship at times, but I would say most recently uh, I did a website redevelopment redesign and I used a low code, no code platform to do so, which made it really easy and efficient for even somebody like me. So it's just great that that's there because in past years, you would spend a lot more money and a lot more time and be reliant on somebody else.
1: Yeah, totally. And it's funny because I, many moons ago, was sort of a web developer in my early days. And it would take anywhere from two to three to four weeks to actually code out a website for people. Yeah. Uh, and that was a long time ago, but uh I don't like thinking about it, it makes me <laughs> shake thinking about it. So I,
0: I, I don't like thinking about that either.
1: <laughs> so um all right. Well wonderful. I really appreciate your time. These are bizarre moments that we are living in right now. But um we're all hoping for the best and a peaceful outcome for whatever happens in the US. Uh, but thank you so much for your time. I really thank appreciate it. It's on us.
0: Thanks so much, joe The Hearing.
1: Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Hearing as much as I've enjoyed hosting it today. If you would like, please give us a rating. Feel free to review us and subscribe to the podcast. That way you'll be notified of new episodes as they come out. Also, if you would like to connect with me on Twitter, it's at Joe Raz. That's J-O-E-R-A-Z-Z. Thank you, and we'll see you next time.
0: The Hearing, a legal podcast from Thomson Reuters. To find out more, go to tr.com forward slash The Hearing or subscribe via iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you
1: get your podcasts.